You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, good morning, everyone. We are beginning a new series called Machlokot B'Yadut, or Disputes in Judaism. And you've got the list of the different topics that we are going to be discussing, but uh, I wanted to start with this topic, and I'll explain why um, soon. But before we begin, I would like to make a statement, which you're all welcome to disagree with, but I feel very strongly about this. But if, if what you walk away from in all of the classes is just this one idea, then dayenu, we've already accomplished so much. And what's that one idea? Now, again, before I say it, feel free to disagree. What I'd like to suggest is that nobody should ever be entitled to any opinion at all on any subject unless they can reasonably argue for the other side. That's the idea. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you have to believe the other side. It doesn't mean that you, that you can't have... And it also doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion before you have all the information. But for you to present yourself and say, this is what I believe, you have to be able to explain what does the other side say. And the reason would be... That's, because, what, that's what Beth Hillel did. That's right. That's exactly it. We we rule like Beit Hillel. Although we're going to get to Hillel and Shammai in a in a later in a later class. But yeah, absolutely, they are the best example of of. Um, we know why is it that we always rule like Hillel because they would always quote the opinion of Beit Shammai first. What does that mean that they quoted the opinion of Beit Shammai first? Why does that mean that they're right? And the answer is that because we we trust that they always took into consideration, well, what's the other side? And I think that that's a, a really big problem today. I think the reason why there's so much divisiveness in the world, where people are mamash, mamash, at extremes, all the way from one end to the other, is because if you don't know what the other side believes, you tend to think of the other side as being um, either stupid or evil. And in too many cases, now I know many people will say, no, no, I don't do that. I'm a person who always, except for those people, those people are bad because they believe that extreme opinion. So what we'd like to do is go through um, a number of, of subjects and, and, and kind of learn how, how our sages and the Torah teaches us to look at both sides of something, even if we disagree. Some of these are going to be very controversial. Some of them are less controversial, but doesn't mean they're less important. That's the, that's the opening. And now let's begin with our first subject. The first um, dispute we're going to have is on the subject of pshara or compromise. And the two sides of the debate are Moshe and Aharon. We'll come to Moshe and Aaron soon, but first I want to explain why this question or this topic is so important. We don't even realize how often in life we compromise. How often in life we concede to, to others. This, this goes all the way to the 
extreme um, a level of importance when we when we talk about how we um, negotiate between different countries. When we negotiate between countries, there's always compromise. And then within a country itself, within a government, there's compromise. Within a business, there's compromise. And within your daily life. So let's begin with the following famous question of compromise that I'm sure all of you have an opinion on. Let's say, again, in, 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 uh, let's assume that you are the president of this country or the prime minister of this country or the king or queen of whatever country you're in. And there is a hostage situation. There are people who are holding uh, people, um, you know, by the, um, with uh, weapons, and they're threatening to kill them, unless you give them a billion dollars. Do you give them a billion dollars? Yes, you do. I see a lot of nodding of the heads, and I see a lot of nodding of the heads, no. Okay, so before we get into it, you already see we have a dispute. We have an argument here. Some people say yes, and some people say no. This is probably an argument where I think most of us could probably present both sides of the debate. But let's, let's open it up. Let's try to do this one at a time. Not, you know, your opinion is very important. But what we're looking for is why do you believe what you believe? What are the reasons? So what we're looking for is for reasons one way or the other why you would or wouldn't give the... Um, this, these um, terrorists, if we can call them that, although they're not always terrorists, um, and why we don't give in to their demands, or why we would. Yes? We don't want to encourage them to do it again. If we pay, it would be repeated many times to get uh, all kinds of uh, even dangerous requests in the future. Okay. So, one, this is just one side. On the other side, imagine that on the other side is my family member, or I know, look at the people and, and their lives, it's impossible to let them, you know, have on my responsibility the, uh, the uh, death. Okay, so if I can... If I, I, can. I, disagree. I disagree with my wife, because <laughs> it says, it says, Kol nefesh achat. So, the value of life has to be paramount. Ah, but the question is, what, uh, what she's suggesting is that if you do give in, and you give them their billion dollars, it's going to encourage other people, and you may end up costing more, I think if I understood you correctly, you may end up costing more lives than the one that you save, so do you have a right to put preference and, and, and to give um, life to the people important to you at the likely endangerment of many more people in the future. I mean, that's, that's the argument. I'm, I'm just, if I understood you, right? Can I answer him? Please. So, in Russia, there are hundreds of stories how they used to kidnap the rabbi or the gabbai or something like that and then put them in prison and then expected the Jewish community to pay for it. And as, as numerous stories are that nobody paid for it because if they will pay today a hundred rubles, tomorrow it will be a hundred and ten. Next week it will be a hundred and twenty. There's unlimited resources of funds in the community to to redeem them from prison. And it, it, 
Those stories are all the way until today. About six years ago, with Gilad Shalit, 1,079 prisoners were released for him. Until today, I'm following this. Over 900 of them are back in the Israeli prison because they did things that are not supposed to be done. Okay, so, so I, these are good points. So the question is, is that a reason to allow some, I mean, that's what's being suggested. I, I do want to make a d- distinction between communities where they would go out and grab people just for the sake of holding them hostage and, and demanding money, where you know for sure it's going to happen again, because they're telling you it's going to happen again. Every week they kidnap someone else. That may be different than what happens in a situation where it seems kind of isolated. You know, for example, if we release prisoners, that's, I think everyone agrees it's going to encourage the release of the fur- further taking of hostages for the release of more prisoners. That, now, does that mean that you shouldn't release the prisoners because of that? that that's, that's the question. But what happens in a situation where it isn't necessarily um, going to cause, but it may? Now, it's not going to cause these people. It can encourage other people. Now, this... Um, uh, does someone else have a thought on this that we haven't yet discussed? Yes, I think that we talk about uh, dealing with the problem in the present or looking at the future. So the debate is a little harder. I would like to make the, the um, communication with the bad people longer and try to deal with this with force on the other side. All right, so now the question is if you have other options, you've got other options. But, but we're, not, we're not in a hostage situation right now. I mean, Zoom is not much of a hostage situation. So, so, so we're, we're speaking of it theoretically here. So the question is within the theoretical, we've got people who are presenting legitimate arguments that right now you have a life in front of you. Why are you worried about future lives when there are people right in front of you who could be killed? So who says we have to worry about the future when you've got your current situation? On the other hand, there are those people who say we should put the number of lives and the general safety of people in front of the life of an individual. And so we've got, we have... Here's my question to you. We've got two sides. How do I resolve this dispute? That's the question. I can hear both sides. Now, how do I know which side is right? How do I know what I should do in this situation? So, yes. You, you don't all, the thing is, you don't always know which side is right. You have to weigh the two sides. Because probably to each side has some right and some wrong. And you have to weigh both of them and see which one is maybe the lesser of two evils. How do you do that? Well, you say, in this particular case, you said, yeah, if I pay the billion dollars, I'm encouraging maybe future incidences of that sort. Or there's always a possibility that they want to release the hostages. You give them the billion dollars and they don't stick to it. But if, if it's enough of a issue, in, enough people maybe on the line that you say that I'll take the risk 
of maybe it would happen in the future, but I will pay for them now, I'll, or I will explore other options in the meantime, like you did said. Okay, so I, I hear you, and I, I, I think that's true, but the, we're not explaining the question of what instruments or tools do I have to measure? Because I, I know you're suggesting maybe if it's saving 20 people, maybe that's bigger and we should do it and not worry about the future, but how do I know how to draw the line? I'm not asking what the line is. I'm asking how do I figure out? That's what we're going to be discussing. How do I figure out? Yes. I think it's a matter of what your principles are. You have to start with a principle before you go into action. Is your principle that uh, you, uh, we can uh, trade uh, a life for a life? Is your principle, you start with a principle, not with uh, how do you solve a particular problem. Right, right. So that's what we have to go back. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the fundamentals of this kind of question and then use it as a tool. Um, yes, you were going to say. I mean, yeah. I, I, yes. think, I think that um, we have to think that you cannot be right 100% and you take risk. And I will concentrate on the risk that we take. Ah, but so you, you have, how do I know what risks to take? That's, that's, you, know, you have to make probability, you, have to you know that there is a probability that you can pay, and this person, you hope, will get free. There is also a probability that you'll pay, and they will kill the person. That's also a risk that you take. So there are a few other risks. And there is a possibility that they will say, oh, if you, they give so easily the money, we can do better next time. We will take only one. We'll take two. So you take risk in your decision. It's not clear black or white. It is much more complicated than that. Right, and so sometimes you are right, and sometimes there is no right and wrong in such a situation. Uh, that's, that's, that's I think, I think you're, you're looking for a tool, right? Right. Uh, the tool, uh, I took a class about decision making. The tool is to make a list of advantages and disadvantages to every uh, one of the situation and count you know, how many advantages and, and how many disadvantages. So that's a tool. That's an interesting suggestion. The, the only issue with that is that you're making an assumption that all of them have the same value. Which, which, which you, you, could, you, you could assume that since you don't have a real way of assessing the, each of the pros and cons, that, that you don't have a choice, so it's like choosing an average or a median um, you know, to, to, to decide the issue. But, but the question, I, again, what, what I'd like to, I, I think that's good, but, but the, the tool, this particular tool, kind of avoids needing to dig into the mire, into the mud, the quagmire of, of the issues themselves, and you just kind of line them up, and then you have to make sure, because if you have 15 on one side and 16 on the other side, and so you decide with the 16, are you sure that your lists are complete? Right? Uh, can I add something? Yes. I, th I think sometimes I heard that people say hypothetical or theoretical issues have theoretical answer. I think you have to be specific. I think this is like a general case. Yes. There are so many possible variables and other points that you need to, to give in a certain case where, what, 
So it's kind of uh, yeah, hypothetical. No. I, 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 I think differently. I think that you have to tell us if we are talking about uh, Judaism, what is Judaism principle of morality? And based on some principle, we can uh, make the way of pro and cons. Right. So we we're we're going to get into that uh, I, again. This was the reason why I put out this question first is because it's a theoretical question. Because I, I, I we don't necessarily need to answer this question. We need to realize the gravity of how in, of how significant this question of compromise can be. We're going to go back now and look at it from a Torah perspective and see the different ways that the rabbis in the Talmud and going back to Moshe and Aaron and how they dealt with situations like this. Which let, Let's do that now. Let's do that now. Let's go there. Okay, the Talmud tells us that Moshe and Aaron had a different way of looking at things. Now, I'm, I'm going to quote to you the verse, but first let me, you all know this situation. The Jewish people are told by Moshe, um, everyone, please wait, Od Arba'im 40 more days, I'm going to come down, just please be patient. As, as we know, the Jewish people were not patient. Vayar Ha'am Ki Boshesh Moshe, the people saw that Moshe was delayed. Vayikahel Ha'am al Aharon, and they gathered around Aaron, and they said, "Kum, aseilanu Elohim, asheyelchu lefanenu." Moshe has left us; he's not coming back. Make for us a god. Now there are different interpretations of "Kum aseilanu Elohim," but let's go with the straightforward reading of the Torah that the people said, "Make us an idol to lead us." Kizeh Moshe Ha'ish asher elanu meretz mitzrayim lo yadanu mehayelo. So what does Aaron do? Does he say to them, what? He builds them the 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 the, the Right. He makes a golden calf. Now, what's the process here? Uh, again, we're, we're not looking at midrashim. We're just reading straight from the Torah. Vayomer alehem Aaron. Aaron says to them. Parku nizme azahav asher ba'aznei neshechem b'nechem uvnotechem ve'eviu alai. Take all the earrings from your wives, from your sons, and from your daughters, and bring them to me. You have to pay for what you want. Yeah, but here's the question. Why the sons? The sons have earrings? Right? And the answer is yes. Because in those days, the men wore earrings. So why does he tell them to bring their wives' earrings? Well, they had wives, maybe. The sons had wives. Yeah, but why not them? But, and what does the Torah say? Vayitparku kal ha'am et nizmei hazahav asher ba'aznehem vayaviu el aharon The people brought their own earrings. Now, this looks like a small little detail in the Torah, but it's actually a big deal. You think about it. Aaron specifically told them, I want you to go get the rings from your wives, from your sons, and from your daughters. And the people showed up with their own rings. What's the chat? Listen to the words of Rashi. Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki. Or as we say Rashi, Rabban Shel Yisrael. Ba'aznei Shechem says Rashi, Amar Aharon Belibo. Aaron said to himself, Hanashim Vayeladim Chasim Betachshitehem. 
the, the women and the children are very protective of their jewelry. Shema yit'akev hadavar Moshe. That's how Rashi explains. Aaron is simply stalling for Moshe. And so he knows he's got to make them an idol. He's got to do it. Okay, let's continue in the Torah. Vayikach mi Adam, he took it from their hands. Vayatsar oto bacheret, vayasehu egel masecha. Aaron, the great Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, he carved a golden calf. Vayomru, and they said, Ela Elohecha Yisrael, etc. Vayar Aaron, now listen to the words, Vayar Aaron, Aaron saw. Vayiven mizbeach lefanav, and then, what did he do? He put an altar in front of the idol. Vayomar, and he said, what did he say? Chag lahashem machar. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have the biggest celebration ever. Why tomorrow morning? We're stalling. He's stalling. Aaron is stalling. This, this doesn't require any difficult interpretations. Aaron is stalling. Why is he stalling? He hopes that Moses will come. Is that how you respond to people who are, who are making crazy demands? He should have said to them, go home and wait for Moshe. Or an idol. An idol? You want an idol because Moshe's gone? Why don't you ask me to lead? Right? They weren't asking Aaron to lead. Like, we don't have Moshe. What's the next best thing? How about a, a baby cow? He compromises. Moses doesn't compromise. He is a prophet. Aaron has to deal with people. He has to compromise. Well, we'll get to why Aaron has to. I think that that's a fair suggestion. But listen to this, because when Moshe comes down from the mountain, after pleading with God, Vayomer Moshe al Aaron, Moshe says to Aaron, just straight from the Torah, Me asa l'cha ha'amazah, ki eveta alavcha ta'agadola. What is wrong? What, what did these people do to you that you would lead them into such a horrible place? And listen to what Aaron says. Vayomer Aaron, al yichar af adoni. Don't get angry. Atayadata et ha'am ki berahu. You know what he's saying? Atayadata et ha'am ki berahu. Ba-ra-a. In evil. Ba-ra. Well, it's... Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, which, there's different ways of reading that. But according to some, Aaron is saying, listen, if I wouldn't have done this, it would have been worse. Says the Talmud, says the Talmud, that Aaron was afraid for his life. There was a crowd that was gathered around him, and he thought that they would kill him. And says that... Very good. Says the Talmud that they made a calculation, I'm sorry, Aaron made a calculation, that it's better for them to be Oved Avod because for that you can do Teshuva and undo the Avera, Better than if they commit murder and you can't undo murder. 
That, that's what the Talmud says, that Aaron is the great compromiser. Says the Talmud, you won't find that from Moshe. Moshe does not agree. Moshe felt like Aaron should have died. Not, he didn't, obviously Moshe doesn't want Aaron to die, but, but look what you did instead. What you did instead was you brought a golden calf, and the Jewish people worshipped a golden calf. That's, that's more dangerous than perhaps one single act of murder. Although you could argue that maybe they would have done it anyway. We don't want to die. We'll, uh, we'll become Greek. Right. Right, I mean, but, you see, the, the idea of right, this compromise, where I'm going to say, listen, we've got to do it like this, otherwise it's going to be worse. It's, it's like Chada Aaron that wrote about Kohen and Avi, the difference between the two people. Right, so the Talmud actually quotes the Kohen and Avi um, uh, subject, which is where he got it from. Um, but, 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 but absolutely, this idea of, of and uh, the Talmud says that they'd already killed Chor and, and that Aaron had reason to believe that they were going to kill him and all of that, that's true but nevertheless, Aaron is deciding on this huge compromise okay, so, so this leads us into a, a very, very difficult a very difficult discussion which is when someone is being told, if you don't help me do this small crime, a bigger crime is going to occur. Should we allow the person to do the small crime? What we're saying essentially is that this is a debate between Moshe and Aaron. Aaron is someone who suggests that we should compromise. Aaron is someone who suggests that if you know that someone is going to do something bad unless you help them, make it less, then that's the way it's going to be. So, um, where this comes up again, in the form of a, a discussion, is, and here's um, where it gets a little more practical, let's say you've got the following situation. You've got someone who wants to eat non-kosher food, for whatever reason. I, 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 I'm... I, I, it would be better if I would avoid the theoretical, but I'm going to stick with the theoretical. So he comes to the rabbi and says, I want to eat this non-kosher food. How can I make it as kosher as possible? <laughs> so, should the rabbi say, well, here's what you can do, at least remove the blood and, and remove these particular fats and whatever, whatever. Or should the rabbi say, listen, if you want to do kosher, do kosher. If you don't want to do kosher, don't do kosher. Where's this in-between? I'm mean, not talking about someone who's in-between because they're taking it slowly. We're talking about someone who just wants to take a compromised position. I like these parts of it, of the mitzvah, and I don't like those parts of the mitzvah. So, should, should someone help them perform only half of the mitzvot? Or, or half of a mitzvah, which is a little different than half of the mitzvot. Well, you can become a reformed Jew, like uh, some of us here, you know. So, we are still, I can still be religious, but not orthodox. We don't have this problem. 
Well, I'm not getting into... He says, for somebody who believes, um, I understand, right? Right. Oh, I, I, I get, somebody who well, believes wants the kosher from the rabbi. Right. Or, or I, would say, I would say that this question is beyond that, because even if, let's say, you're a Reformed Jew, and you come to your Reformed rabbi, and you say, I want to keep these rules that we believe in, and those rules, it doesn't matter where you are. If you come and show up with a compromised position... Should that be worked with, or should you be told either one or the other? Can you have that? So what we're told is that if you came before Aaron, he would tell you, yes, do what you need to do. But if, if you came before Moshe, he would say no. The, the language of the Talmud is that, um, uh, let me read it to you directly. Moshe haya omer, Yikov hadin et hahar. Let the law pierce the mountain. Meaning that you're standing there. It's a metaphor, obviously. You've got, you've, got, you've got the law. And the law comes up against the mountain. And the only way is to go around or to go over. Says Moshe, Yikova Tahar. Go straight through the mountain. The law is the law. The rules are the rules. And we can't compromise. Now, people will break the rules, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean you get to compromise the rules. It means like this, if you don't want to, let's go with, uh, let's say you, you believe that, um, that you should be allowed to kill. You want to kill, it says in the Torah, don't kill, you want to kill. So you come to the rabbi and you say, listen, I want you to tell me that killing all people who have, uh, who, who, uh, who, who drive too slow, that's okay. I just won't kill people who drive, who drive fast. That's ridiculous, right? Who, why would you get to kill people of a certain group and not... not uh, there's no sense in that. But if I tell you, listen, if you don't give me this line, then I'm just going to do what I want. That doesn't mean I get to draw imaginary lines for you. Lines that don't make any sense. So in the same way... What we're being told is, over here is Moshe says the law is the law. Now you may kill someone or you may commit a crime, but I'm not going to justify it for you by suggesting that your compromise is a fair compromise. It can be a slippery slope. You yes. love this and then he wants this and then he wants this. You have to hold the line somewhere. Okay. Uh, Alright. Are we all ready for the next level? Okay, here's a story that you all know. Once upon a time, there were 12 brothers who didn't get along so well. One of the brothers, let's call him Yosef, was a little bit of a tattletale and would go to the father and say all kinds of bad things. And he also had these interesting dreams. And the brothers, we're assuming felt that he was a dangerous person. This is over years. When they said, let us go and kill him, we're not talking about wicked, murderous people. Even though they were warriors, as we see in Shechem with Shimon and Levi. But these were, these were people who thought about what they did. And they said, when they said, they were suggesting that Yosef was so dangerous to the family and to the future of their legacy that he needs to be killed. 
And the brothers agreed. Even Ruvain, who, who um, suggested that they throw him into a pit, officially his story was, let's throw him into a pit, so, um, because we can't, um, the language was, Al-Tish V'chudam, V'yad Al-Tish V'chubo, right? In other words, you can't directly kill him. Vayomer Yehuda El Echav. And Yehuda said to his brothers, Ma betza ki achinu? Ma betza ki achinu? What have we gained? What have we accomplished when we kill our brother? V'chisinu adamo. L'chu v'nimkarenu la yishma'elim. Let's go sell him. In other words, we can't kill him, but he's a danger to the family. You know what? Let's do it a little less. We'll do a smaller crime. And you know what happens at the end of Yaakov's life when he's blessing his children? He says, Yehuda, you are going to be praised by your brothers. Why? Um, Gur Aryeh Yehuda, because you are like a lion. Miteref Bni Alita. You saved my son from death. Yehuda is considered a savior? A savior? He had him sold down into slavery. It turns out, we got lucky that it was the right thing to do, because Yosef would, over the next um, um, 22 years, well less, uh, 15 years, become the most you know, 13, become the most powerful man in the world. But they didn't know that. Yehuda doesn't know that. And Yaakov seems to treat Yehuda like he's the hero. Because he compromised. So, so what's the answer? So, we have a machloket between Moshe and Aaron, between Yehuda and the brothers, between members of this group over here, we're all disagreeing about how to draw these lines. So, the answer to the question is going to be, it's a machloket. It's a machloket, what to do when you have this kind of machloket. Obviously. So let me suggest some ideas, and uh, feel free to interject at, at different points. The first is the opinion of the French rabbis. This includes Rashi and Tosafot, that's Rashi's grandchildren. The French rabbis suggest the following. They say that it depends on what your job is. It depends on what your role is. If you are a judge, or a community leader, or a rabbi, where whatever you say is actually going to create a precedent for this being the ruling, then you have to stick to the law. But, if you are a private citizen, or you're in a situation where what your action isn't going to decide the law, but it, it can almost be seen as an exception to the, to the rule, then you're allowed to compromise. And therefore, they say, Moshe, who is a judge, he is not allowed to make such compromises. But Aaron who is not a judge. On the contrary, what's Aaron's job? His job is going to be the Kohen. The Kohen is not a judge. The Kohen 
is the representative of the people in the spiritual realm. He's your, he's your therapist. Right? He has to make you feel good about yourself, obviously in a healthy way. But that's, what, that's what's being suggested. So, the, again, the French rabbis, and I say French rabbis, I don't mean that in an insulting way, even though I'm British, but um, they, they, um, they believe that it depends on who you are and where you are. Now, this is going to be an answer to, to all of the questions. What they're going to say is in every situation, you have to look at it and see... Is this the kind of situation where people are going to say, or even yourself, you're going to say, well, that's what we did last time, let's do it again. And so that's the most important factor. So you mentioned before about laying out pros and cons, and seeing which way, so th- and, and you suggested that as a tool for how to resolve the problem. What, what they're suggesting is also you use a tool, but the tool is specifically the role that the person who has to make a decision, what their position is. And there was a Hasidic Rebbe called the Rebbe of Alexander. It's a city in Poland. The, the Rebbe of Alexander said, we find in the Torah that when someone has tsarat, leprosy, it says, al You bring him to the Kohen, and the Kohen declares if the person is Tahor or Tameh, if they are clean or not clean. That's the, that's the law in the Torah. Who do we go to? We go to the Kohen. That's what it says in the Torah. That means, and the Talmud makes this very clear, if the Kohen is not, doesn't know the rules of Tzarat, whether it's Tameh or Tahor, what does he do? He should go to a mumcha, to an expert, even if he's Israel, and the Israel, the expert, should tell him what the rule is regarding this leprosy, and then the coin can declare tahor or tameh. So he says, we never find such a thing. We, usually, everywhere in the Torah, if you want to know whether something is kosher or not kosher, you go to an expert. Here, you don't go to an expert. You go to the Kohen, the Kohen can ask the expert, but it's the Kohen who has the ultimate decision on the matter. Which is why today, even Bismana in today's days, if a Jew has a possible tzarat, leprosy, he should not go to a Kohen. Because if the Kohen says, this is tzarat, you might end up with big problems. That's actually the halacha. So, I mean, we, we don't really study tzarat, but theoretically speaking, that's what would happen. Says the Rebbe of Alexander, why? Where do we have such an idea? And this is what he says. He says, everybody knows about Aaron, that he's Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. You've all heard that statement, it's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, Aaron is Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. Says the, says the Midrash, what does that mean? And we see that when Moshe died, it says, Vayivku Oto Beit Yisrael. But when Aaron da- died, it says, Vayivku Oto Kol Beit Yisrael. And the Talmud tells us the difference was, was because Moshe was an arbiter of the law, and so a lot of people were sad when he died, but not like Aaron. Because Aaron was the peacemaker between people. Says the Midrash, how did Aaron make peace? Everyone knows this, but I'll say it anyway. When two people were not getting along, 
Aaron would go to one of them and he would say, you know, I spoke to the other person and they're very sad that, you know, you're not in communication. He misses your friendship and he really wishes that you could get along. And uh, then he would go to the other guy and say to him, the other guy feels really bad, he's really sorry for what happened, he misses your friendship and the whole thing. And they would each believe that the other person is regretful and they would come together and they would meet and they would make peace. Yeah, you've all heard this before? You, you know what Aaron is? Aaron is a shakran. No? He's a liar. Now, we're going to leave this debate completely for the Hillel and Shammai class, which is the Emet versus Shalom discussion. But, but I, I want you to appreciate that what Aaron is saying is that right now the truth is not important. More important than for me to relay the proper information is that these people make peace. Why does a person get sara'at? Um, when someone has sara'at, they're called a mitzorah. You know why they're called a mitzorah, according to the Talmud? Because mitzorah is short for motzi shemra or motzi ra. You get sara'at when you speak lashon hara. That's what the Talmud says. So when someone speaks Lashon Hara, what's the number one defense that everyone says when they speak gossip and when they, when they talk about other people? The most, it's true. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling you facts. I'm just telling you. So what Aaron says is that yeah, even if it's the truth, it still doesn't mean that you have to say it. So when someone is in Mitzorah, because they are claiming I'm sharing true information, they need to go to the Kohen, the descendant of Aaron, to realize that even if it's the truth, doesn't mean that you have to, doesn't mean that you have to share it. And that's why we go to the Kohen. Again, the same idea that it's, it's sometimes it's more important that um, something bigger happen. And it's worth committing a transgression for that purpose. So says the Maharsha, the Maharsha was a commentary on the Talmud who lived 500 years ago. He says that Yehuda is a tzaddik because he made a cheshbon, he made a calculation. Yehuda really wanted, what he really wanted was to bring Yosef home. But he knows that if he tells his brothers not to do anything, then they won't listen to him. So he said, a bird in the hand, it's better to at least take what I can and not, um, and not allow them to commit the worst thing, which would be murder. Now, th- this... Okay, you know, to decide, the, to decide every single situation, and going back to your point before, where you said theoretical questions get theoretical answers, the problem is that we can't look at every situation directly. But what we're looking for is what is the structure of the tools that we use. So we have the first instrument, the first tool that we suggested, was that it depends on your role and your position. The second opinion 
is that it has to do with actually weighing, as I think someone mentioned before, which is the lesser of the two evils. So according to this, according to the Maharsha, Shlomo Idolus, according to him, you have to actually look at the two evils and say which is the least. So, I know you mentioned before pros and cons, but pros and cons don't always consider only the, the two choices and which is worse. But according to this, he's going to say that all of these questions can be answered with this. Aaron said we have a choice between murder and idol worship. Idol worship is easier to repent from because there's no one to bring back to life. So I'm going to choose idol worship over murder because, not because like Rashi and Dali Tosavot said, because he wasn't a judge, but um, he learns, the Marshal learns, because it was what he, what the calculation that he made over what's the least of the two evils. So if I can bring this back to the first question, which was what do we do when terrorists are asking for a billion dollars or they're going to kill the hostages? So then what we have to do, according to this opinion, is measure the least of the two evils. So you have to know, that's assuming you have the information, you have to say, here we have the death of these people, but then we're assuming that it's not going to happen again. So let's say there's five hostages, you've got the death of five people. And you have to weigh that against, number one, the billion dollars. Number two, the precedent you're setting to cause. What is the likelihood of more people being taken hostage? And you have to weigh the two, and somehow you have to come up with which is the least of the two evils, regardless of, let's say, other factors, like how much money you have. So in practical uh, cases, uh, in reality, sometimes I notice that we punish the person that uh, was even asked to compromise. Was Aaron punished? I mean, uh, like in a war, they ask a commander to do some something, and then after, even though he obey order, and even though he uh, he was a compromising uh, person. Uh, he paid for his compromise. Right. So the answer to your question is Aaron was rewarded, which is, right. even, which is even more shocking. Aaron is rewarded. He's given the Kahuna Gedola. And, and it says, the, the Midrash tells us, it's based on a verse, that when Aaron came, he was like hesitant. He was like, why are you choosing me? I'm the one who made the Egel. And Moshe says to him, no, 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 lekach nivcharta. This is why you were chosen. And there's something about, and this is a very dangerous statement to make, but there's something about the people who are willing to take risks in situations where other people would take the easy way out, that they are actually more fit for the role, but not to be the Av Beidin. Because, and that may be the difference between a general in the army and someone else, but to be the Kohen. In other words, such a person can be a representative of the people in a spiritual way, because he understands the challenges of the people. And where the Talmud makes all kinds of statements like this, I, I, I mean, I, I really need hours and hours to go through where all of this is discussed in, in different places in the Talmud. But let me give you another teaching of the Talmud. The Talmud says that, Misha Achzo, 
Meaning someone who is overwhelmed, he's going he's gonna to do something wrong. He needs to do a certain avera. He needs to commit a certain sin. Let's, uh, let's use a very silly example, but I think everyone can apply it to their own Yetzer Let's say you have an overwhelming desire to be nimshach b'shemen amishcha, to find the oil of the Beit HaMikdash and to anoint yourself, which is a prohibition of the Torah, unless you're a melech, a king, or a kohen. Again, I'm purposely using a silly example. But you, you think about it, you want to do it, and you go, nah, 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 I'm not allowed to do it. But I really want to. And everyone knows this process. It starts to build inside of you. You start um, thinking about doing it. You start planning on doing it. And as it becomes more powerful, you realize, I'm going to do it. There's no question I'm going to do it. Now the problem is, if I'm going to be nimshach b'shem and amishcha, and everyone's going to see, it's going to be a big disgrace. It's going to be a, 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 a shameful experience. Says the Talmud, what should you do? Yelech l'makom she'en makirin oto, v'yilbash shechorim, v'yaseh ma she'yaseh v'yachzor. The Talmud says, listen, if you're going to do something wrong, go somewhere where nobody knows you, put on clothing, yilbash shechorim, put on some dark clothing, no one recognizes you, do your thing and come back. Is, is, are you not surprised that this is a statement in the Talmud? Does this not sound like it's telling everyone, listen, do whatever you need to do, just uh, don't ask, don't tell? Is that, is, that, is that what the Talmud is saying? Clearly not. So what is the Talmud saying? The Talmud is saying, when you know you're going to do it anyway, I don't want you to do it, but if you're going to do it anyway, do it responsibly. Now that's a pshara. Let me give you a very, very modern example. It's so modern that it's mamash within the last few years. I'm not going to use specifics, but you all, you know, all know what I'm talking about. Let's take a country in the world, let's pick one, the United States of America. The United States of America has a basic concept that most countries in the world have, that the government has to control narcotics. You have to control drugs, because drugs are addictive, and they're dangerous, and they can influence people, and they can kill people. So, all civilized countries have a system. There's a way of production of these narcotics, there's ways that they are distributed, there's ways that they are kept secure, and there's a criminalization of the possession and dispensing of illegal narcotics. But then, you may have some narcotics that are not as dangerous as others. And people are using them anyway. So should the government say, listen, it's better that people do it in a controlled way, with, and where we can track and make sure that it's not uh, laced with anything, where it's, or should the government say, it's illegal, it's not, it's not of benefit, and obviously medicinal purposes are, are not what we're discussing, or should the government say, it's better that um, um, it's, it's, it, you shouldn't do it at all. You know, these are, this is the question. So what happens? This is a real debate, because it's practical, it's actually happening. In I mean, also taxes, 
this way they make money. Right. Well, the, the taxation is a, is a, is another issue, which is once they once they uh, once they are going to legalize it, so then there's a there's a money issue involved, and obviously that's a factor. But the question is, is it proper for a government that's supposed to be in charge of everything, our leadership, to say to us, listen, we know it's not good for you. And again, medicine aside. But in general, there are certain individuals it may be good for, but it's not okay for the society at large. They don't need it. But if, since you're, and here's the key, you're going to do it anyway, you might as well do it in a way that's um, at least has a chance of keeping you safe. They give them clean needles. The needle exchange, they give them clean needles to inject to right, right. inject so this is a debate that's going on, state to state. Some states have legalized it, some have not, and I, and I agree with you, some of it is financially motivated, but some of it comes down to this question, is should we compromise? So I, I know I'm running out of time, and I have one more important point I want to stick in before we close it off, so I'm going to try to say this quickly. There is a position of the Divrei Shaul. The Divri Shaul suggests a brilliant, his name was Rabbi Yosef Shaul Natanzan. He was the chief rabbi in, in Lemberg in, in the, um, in the uh, 1800s. Suggests a brilliant idea. Here's what he says. He says it depends on who the compromise comes from. In other words, when people come to the government and they say, we want this to be legal. And the government says, no, you don't need it. It's only going to cause problems. And the people say, well, at least give us for this. So now the compromise is coming from the people. Same thing going back to, going back to um, you know, the case of the Egel or the case of all these other cases. He says, it depends. He says, when, you're, when someone comes to you and says to you, what do I do in this situation? If they say, should I do this or should I do that, you can't suggest a compromise. But if the person themselves suggests the compromise in their question, if they come to you and say, listen, is this better than that? You have to tell them the truth that this is better than that. So now, yep, this is an interesting tool to use, but what he's saying is it depends where the compromise comes from. And this has a major, major ramification on a very simple concept that I didn't have time to get into. And maybe we'll talk about it in the Hillel Shammai class a little bit. But the idea... That's why the part legalization, you know, usually happens by referendum of the people. Right, right, but the reason why you're doing it, why you're even putting it up as a vote, right? It's, it's because you feel like the, this question has to be resolved somehow. But, but, and directly speaking to you, you should know that when you put out an estate, you know, should we legalize a certain narcotic, the majority of people are not voting yes because they actually want to use it. It's not true that all the people who say yes are people who would use it and people who say no are people who wouldn't use it. It's much more about the theoretical, should it be legalized or should it not be legalized? Is it better that it's controlled? or is it, is it, So is it better that the people who use it be safer about it? Or the other way, is it, even though you're going to encourage more people who wouldn't use it to use it? There are people who would never do it if it was illegal, but they will do it when it's legal. And this question, I guess I'm going to have to finish with this, this question 
that isn't just like we I, we started in the most theoretical question possible negotiating with ter- with terrorists uh, that's not theoretical for some people, but for us, I think, unless there's any um, hostage negotiators here, uh, it's, it's a theoretical question, but you should know that you're asking yourself this question every single day. There's always things in life that present as some form of compromise, whether it's a dispute between people, and you have to wonder about this. I, I, you know, if I would go to current events, I would say, you know, is it okay to... Um, uh, side with people who want to send a, a, a million dollars to count fish here and the, the, you know this crazy um, 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 big bills that the country but in order to get it done I've got to, um, I've got to send money to people you know is this kind of compromise an okay thing to do it's true that the government does it all the time but you do it all the time and knowing what these two sides are and knowing the compromise has to lead you to a question of the compromise is too far from one side, but it's also too far from the other side. A compromise is, in a way, not really um, speaking the, the truth. Uh, again, I'm saving truth for, for a later class. So what do I do? So that's what these people are debating. There are those who suggest it depends on your role. There's some who suggest that you have to look at literally which is the lesser of two evils. And then the third suggestion which we had was that it depends on where the compromise is coming from and who is the one suggesting the compromise. Most importantly, that when we do make these decisions, we know what the two sides of the question are. You can make a compromise if you realize and accept the consequences of taking the compromise. When you do that, even whether you're making the right decision or the wrong decision, you may not know till later, but at least you're making an informed decision. Anyone who believes that they've made every decision in their life correctly is a fool. But you have to at least be convinced that you've that you've made the choices using a good process and a certain consistency in the way that you think and that's what these opinions are trying to figure out how to draw those lines. But within the Torah, there is room for pshara, room for compromise, but not always. Sometimes it's the wrong thing to do and all of life in these questions becomes about figuring out how to properly draw the line. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.